0: Well, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. What you hold in your hands, this book called the Bible is an ancient collection of writings that we have read and that we have seen become the greatest bestseller of all time. But this is more than just a collection of eight writings. It is a document written over a period of what scholars estimate is over 1,500 years. This collection of writings originates from over 40 different authors from all backgrounds, from all kinds of personalities, putting their own spin to it, coming from all kinds of experiences with original manuscripts written across three different languages on three different continents And despite all of these facts working against it, each portion of the Scripture fits together into one cohesive story, like any good story. And if you don't know this is a feat to be marveled at, how many of you have seen movies where they have part one and part two and part three, and as it goes on and on, you're like, I don't know how this connects with part one, and this just seems like a film among itself, right? So when, even, when it comes to the idea of even writing a good story, the fact that over 1,500 years, 40 different writers, one consistent, coherent theme communicated through an appropriate beginning and a logical ending, you'll know that this is a feat to be marveled at. And by the way, it has essential character. And for those of you who've read the Bible from cover to cover, you'll know that the most consistent theme in Scripture is that no matter how hard people tried to keep God's law, the chosen people of God always did what? They fell short. They could not save themselves by their works because salvation through the law required perfect obedience. And this is the theme That the apostle Paul was alluding to in his letter to the church in Galatia. He said, for all who rely on the works of law are under a curse because it is written, everyone who does not do everything, every, say everyone say everything, everything, everything written in the book of the law is what? Cursed. Now this truth was the understanding and the burden was the burden of their need for a savior that a God-fearing Jew bore. And it is why they desperately awaited a Messiah. The God-fearing Jew understood, the God-fearing Jew who understood the idea of a Messiah incompletely was looking for a savior to come and rescue them from political oppressors and liberate them to have a land of their own. This is, this is what the person who understood the idea of a Messiah incompletely, this is what they were looking for, a, a political Freedom fighter, basically. But the Jew who understand all of what the law and the prophets spoke about the coming Messiah would know exactly what Matthew was trying to communicate from the very beginning of his gospel when he wrote this. You remember in Matthew 1, it says, But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will do what? He will save his people from their sin. In other words, Jesus came to live the life we were required to live, but could never So we could live the life God wants us to live with him forever. Jesus came to live a life that we were required to live. We and I were required to live this law-following life. But we could never. So Jesus lived that life. So that you and I could live the life that God wants us to live. Which is what? What? With him forever. And this is how Matthew continues this message in Matthew chapter four, verse one. So like in chapter one, we hear this move of the Spirit to conceive Jesus inside of Mary. And now we have this in verse one. Then Jesus was led up by here you go. Who it is this person again? The Spirit. Into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So far, the author of this gospel, Matthew, has described the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus in two other ways. One, as we read first here, Jesus was born into a world threatened in by his existence, but also threatening his existence by way of conception of the Holy Spirit within Mary. And then as we saw in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus was baptized and then what descended upon him like a dove? The Holy Spirit. And now this same Holy Spirit leading him into the wilderness is at work in his life. Now, I don't do this very often, but sometimes looking at the Greek structure of the word is helpful. And the Holy Spirit led Jesus to be Pierso, which here in this translation says tempted, but it's actually a word that can also mean tested. It, it, it goes back and forth. And this is important to note because while being tempted can mean an attempt to lead someone to evil, that's what we think of when we say tempt, like, you know, hey, uh, did you see Phil bought some uh, some donuts from, from uh, Quick Trip? He's trying to tempt me To get fat, right? (laughs) Right? That's what you like to do, evil. I don't know if that's evil, but it's definitely not good for you. While we understand temptation in that way, in scripture, this pierzo is often an opportunity to reveal or develop the character of the one who is being pierzoed or tempted or tested. In Genesis 22, verse 1, God tested Abraham's faith and obedience. Remember when God told him, hey, take your son up to that mountain and sacrifice him. And he tested him to see if he would, how far would he go? Of course, he didn't have to sacrifice his son. But he passed the test in Exodus twenty-twenty, God tested the people of Israel so that they would fear the Lord and not sin. And even in the New Testament, in John 6, this, is just, an, this just wasn't a, an Old Testament idea of like God testing people. In the New Testament, we actually see Jesus testing a guy by the name of Philip, testing his faith before he performed the miracle of feeding 5,000 people with a young boy's lunch. What five loaves and what? Two fishes. So what does this temptation or testing of Jesus look like? Well, that's what we're going to read Today, verse 2, after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, here we have this first temptation of Jesus that is really an appeal to every human being's inclination and desire to be their own savior, to be the ruler of their life, to be the one who can give them what they need. And how do I know this? Why? Because this is the popular thought of the world around us. No one can make you happy but who? You, right? Who's the master of your fate? You, right? And so the devil tempts Jesus to do for himself what only God can do. But unlike the first Adam, Adam and the Eve, Adam, who was drawn away by his own desire, Jesus would not give in to temptation. This is why the Apostle Paul called Jesus the second Adam. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes into this whole theological um, exposition of how Jesus is this second Adam. It's very interesting, and this is a theme throughout the Scripture that Unlike the first Adam, who was enticed by his desire, Jesus, when tested, was better. Jesus resisted temptation with God's word, quoting scripture. In response to Satan's temptations here, he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. In the next temptation, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy six sixteen. And the last temptation, Jesus would quote from Deuteronomy six thirteen to fourteen. I put this up here just in case if you don't have one of those cool Bibles that has all the cross references in there, you can go ahead and check this out. It's very, very, it's 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 a great thing. You should just take a look at these passages of Scripture. So, what are these things that Jesus says? Well, let's look at the next temptation. Then the devil took him to the holy city. Verse 5, had him stand on the pinnacle of a temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, (laughs) oh, Mr. Devil, I see what you're doing. Now you're trying to throw the Bible back at Jesus' face. Okay, for it is written, he will give his angels order concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him. It is also written, Do not test the Lord your God. Now, I find it very interesting that what Satan here does to Jesus is is not very that much different from what some people who want to appear religious but are really living for themselves do. And what is this? Well, they take something... That the scripture says, right? They, 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 they they look through the scripture and, and they, and they find something that serves their own purpose their own desire and their own belief about what they think God is like and how a Christian should live because they consider themselves a Christian because, you know, all the other religions just seems kind of weird. And You know, I'm American and so, you know, I'm kind of Christian and that sounds right and Jesus is a loving guy and I think I want to follow a guy named Christ because he loves everybody. And so what I'll do instead of reading the scripture and letting it tell me how I'm supposed to live my life, I'll assume that God is probably in line with how I'm thinking anyways you know, I'm pretty smart. And so, uh, you know, I've been to Sunday school sometimes. And so I have these ideas and I have this thing that I want to believe about who God is and how I'm supposed to live. And so I looked at the Bible and I'm like, oh, there it is. There's the thing to prove what I believe about myself. And they take something the scripture says out of context and use it to serve their own purpose. And in this temptation, the goal wasn't to get Jesus to prove that he was was who God said he was to prove that he was the beloved son with whom God is well pleased. So when he says, if you are the son of God, he wasn't saying, I don't think you are. (laughs) What he was doing, he was trying to tempt Jesus to do something that wasn't in God's plan. As one Bible scholar would put it, it was temptation to use his sonship in a way inconsistent with his God-ordained mission. It's not unlike many of the storylines you find in popular movies. You know, the son of the prince, he has his own life now. And he has this friend that says, you don't have to live your life your dad's way. You can live your life your way, right? He said, yeah, you're right. I am the prince. I can do what I want. And, you know, movies twist it to make it look like, you know, the, the, the father who wants him to be the prince, that's a really bad thing. And like, you should let him go ahead and be an artist, right? You should let him be an artist. But this is the way the devil perverts the truth about God. And he tries to convince Jesus, hey, you're the son of God, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. Come on. I mean, you can do this, right? You could throw yourself down. I mean, the scripture says the angels are going to Come and catch you I mean if you you can do this, he was tempting him to use his sonship in a way that was inconsistent with god's ordained mission. I wonder if you've ever been tempted in this way. I wonder if you have ever been tempted to use scripture out of context in a way to support a desire that really didn't come as an outflow of God's ordained mission for your life. I remember there was a young man in a youth group that I was a youth pastor over, and he was in love with this girl. Actually, another youth leader. And uh, and he came up to me and was like, Hey, Phil, you know so-and-so. You know, I've just been praying. I really like her. And I was praying to God to show me a sign, whether she's the one. And I was praying and, 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 and I was going through my Bible and I randomly opened up to, to Deuteronomy 21. And Phil, do you know what it says in Deuteronomy 21? It says this. If you see a beautiful woman, take her as your wife. I, I think, I think God wants me to marry her. Thank you. Thank God. I will let you know it did not turn out that way. You've heard people say things like this, right? You've heard people say things like, you know, I've been feeling a lot of pressure recently about some decisions in my life. But you know, I read this verse that says, God knows the plans he has for me, plans to prosper me. So anything that doesn't lead to prosperity must not be from God. And I'm gonna let you know, sometimes God leads you down some paths that don't look so prosperous for you in the moment, but God's will is to prosper you eventually. And so sometimes the people take scripture out of context. Some people they, they they say things like this: "You know, God will build His church. That's what the scriptures say." So I don't have to be someone who invests my life in seeing God's church grow because it's going to grow, right? And if you don't believe that, then you're not really scriptural. <laughs> Or some people say, I'm a Christian and the Bible tells me that if God will forgive me, if I confess my sins, then I don't have to work so hard to to, to be this holy person, you know? I don't have to work so hard and stress about, you know, these desires I have that are incongruent with God's standards. I don't have to, I don't have to work so hard. I mean, God's gonna forgive me anyways, right? And so all I need to do is just love Him and love others and, I mean, God knows I'm imperfect anyways. There's no need to be holy as, oh wait, that's what Jesus said. Be holy as I am holy. The good news, by the way, is that Jesus showed us how to fight temptation. Temptation. How to fight the temptation to misrepresent God's word in, our, word in our lives. And misuse our identity in Christ for our own personal fulfillment. And in this last temptation, Jesus shows the way. Verse 11, 8 to 11 It says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, go away. That's how I think he said it. (laughs) Go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and began to serve him. If you read the New Testament, you'll know Paul talks about this a lot. Jesus talked about this idea of one day his kingdom will be established on the earth. The book of Daniel tells us about this. Particularly and specifically, Paul in Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus Christ will one day rule over the whole earth, Philippians chapter 2. You could take a look at that. And so if this is true, that Jesus will eventually be the king who rules over everything, over all the earth, then the question is, is what was wrong, what was really wrong with Satan's offer to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world? Like what was, if Jesus is gonna be the king anyways, what was wrong With Satan's offer. Well first. Satan was challenging Jesus' obedience to God's timing. He was telling him to doubt God's timing by telling him. Hey, what are you waiting for Jesus? Look. I know. I know God the Father. Like he's got these plans for you. And I don't even know what they are. Because he didn't know. He didn't know death was going to be the way That Jesus would conquer death. (laughs) I don't know what the father has from you, but it looks like, I mean, he, he brought you to earth as a baby. And you're like 30 something now. I mean, don't you deserve to be king now? Hey, I can make you the ruler over everything. Like right now, I can give it to you right now. Why wait for dad? We can do it right now. In other words, Jesus was tempted to believe. Jesus was tempted to believe that he would know better than God did about the timing of his life. Second, Satan was suggesting that there was a way Jesus could establish his rule on earth by sidestepping God's plan. The only problem is that in order to get this, Jesus would have to entertain idolatry. He said, "If I will give you all these things if you will fall down and do what? Worship me. In other words, Jesus was tempted to gain what he believed was rightly his by surrendering his affection and devotion to a false idol that promised immediate gratification. He was tempted to get what he believed was his by surrendering his affection to a false idol that promised immediate gratification. And I think some of you can already know where this is going. In the same way, we can often be tempted to believe that we know better about God's timing for our lives. Than God does. And so what do we do though? Like, what do we do with Matthew chapter four? Is this in some way a demonstration of how followers of Jesus are to resist temptation? Maybe. There are some elements. Of that here, but Jesus and the apostles talk more specifically about resisting temptation in more detailed and helpful ways in other places. There's definitely better places in the scripture to talk about this idea, like, how do we defeat temptation? So what's most important? Well, I think what's most important to remember is that Matthew is building an argument that Jesus is the Messiah— even though he comes through in unexpected and ironic ways. For instance, Jesus, I don't know if you've ever thought about like this, but Jesus came to save people from their sins. But he ultimately experiences a sinner's death. He came to give life to sinners, but ended up dying for sinners. He was sold out for 30 pieces of silver, But he freely gives his life as a ransom for many. Jesus refused to turn stones into bread for himself, but he would eventually give his body as what? As bread for people. And sure, this story of the temptation of Jesus can help you better learn to resist temptation by using scripture. Get that? But if that's all you see, then you kind of miss the point of really what Matthew is trying to communicate here. The point of the story is that Matthew is proving that where we all fail to succeed, Jesus is victorious. This demonstration of Jesus' ability to suffer all that we suffer and not sin is what the writer of what we call the book of Hebrews was trying to use as a source for placing our attention on what really, really Matters In Hebrews 4, it says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession or our faith. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Who is this high priest? Jesus. But one who has been what? Tempted in every way as we are, and here's a kicker, yet without sin. Oh God, thank you so much for sending your son who would live the life that we could never live so we could live the life you want us to live. Thank you, Lord. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with what? Boldness. I like how one translation says this. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. In the coming weeks, Jesus will have plenty of clear teaching. Trust me, as we move into what is popularly known as this Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we're going to come, like literally, week after week is going to be bangers, <laughs> as the kids would say, of, of instructions about how you and I, who are followers of Jesus, are to live. He will be giving a great dissertation, as some Bible scholars say, of the ethics of the kingdom. And we're going to find all about that. In a few weeks, we're going to learn all about how Those who desire to follow Jesus should live and how they should view the world. But today, today, before we get there, and in vain with what I think Matthew would want his readers to do before they got to all the teaching of Jesus, Matthew wanted people to see that Jesus was worthy of praise, that he was strong enough to save, that he is the Messiah, and that he is the one worthy, the one we can go to boldly and confidently for the grace and for the mercy that we are looking for in our lives before we seek the change. We need to know that Jesus is strong enough to see our weaknesses and our pain and he's strong enough and he's willing enough and he's loving enough to love you where you're at so that he can take you where you can never take yourself to go. He's willing to forgive you He's willing to extend his mercy to you. He is the Messiah. You have tried to resist the temptation. In fact, a lot of Bible scholars, I didn't really want to go into it, but it's it's a really huge part of it. There's a lot of parallelism and all this imagery between 40 days and 40 nights and starving and... You know, blah, blah, This idea that there's this parallel between how the Israelites just consistently let Jesus down. 40 days, 40 nights represents the 40 years running, and then all this stuff. And, and there's this idea, but there's this consistent theme that Matthew was telling his readers who were Jewish, and which I didn't really go into it because we're not Jewish, but here's the ba- basic concept. We will try and try and try and try and try and try and try in our own power to meet God's standards, but we will never do it. But Jesus did. And, I could tell you that the Bible is about you, but that won't help you love Jesus more. Which is why I love telling you that the Scriptures is about Jesus. And you can learn to love him more if you read it that way. And Matthew is trying to tell us that today. And I want to encourage us to do what Matthew was trying to encourage his readers in the same way that the writer of Hebrews was trying to encourage his. Let us approach Jesus with confidence. Let us embrace him as our refuge, as our strength. Let's embrace him as the lover of our souls, the healer of our broken hearts, and the only one who can forgive and restore us from our sins. That's good news, my friend.